This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Recently, I put out my first A History of episode, chronicling the rise of A24 films. After the huge success that that episode was, I decided to continue the series going even deeper into film history. Over the last 36 years, the Criterion Collection has been synonymous with film lovers and collectors. They are the premier destination for your favorite hard-to-find arthouse flicks, out-of-print classics, B-movie masterpieces, retrospective box sets, and the best special features of any home video distributor. How did the company get its start and grow to where it is today? On this show, we'll track the most important milestones of the company's illustrious career. The company has gone through many different versions of itself, sometimes just a simple name change, or who the parent company is, and sometimes it was more complex. This is meant to be a general overview, so some parts have been edited for clarity. Before we start talking about the Criterion Collection, we first need to know what happened before, and that before is a company called Janus Films, which itself was also not the original company. Two men, Bryant Halliday and Cyrus Harvey Jr., took over ownership of the Brattle Theater in the early 1950s, a building on Harvard's campus that dates back to 1871. When they took over, they started showing screenings of world cinema. At the time, it was rare for Americans to be able to see international cinema without going to film festivals, as their local theaters just didn't show them. In 1956, they officially created the company Janus Films, named after the two-faced Roman god of transitions, passages, beginnings, and endings. Halliday and Harvey had a hit on their hands and moved the company to New York to the 55th Street Playhouse located in Midtown Manhattan. The first film they actually got the rights to distribute was Federico Fellini's The White Sheik, but the first hit was Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, which came out in 1957 after Janus inked a deal with Bergman to be the exclusive distributor in the U.S., eventually proving that Americans were interested in cinema from around the world. Du spelar ju schack, inte sant? Hur vet du det? Ja, jag har sett det på målningar och hört i visorna. Ja, jag är verkligen en ganska skicklig schackspelare. Du kan ändå inte vara skickligare än jag. Varför vill du spela schack med mig? Det är min sak. Det har du rätt i. Things went on pretty well for Janice for the next while as they capitalized on Bergman's most productive years making films. Eventually, though, as Bergman concentrated on theater and the general population was seeing less international films as a whole, Halliday and Harvey eventually sold Janice to two men, Saul Terrell and William Becker in 1965. Terrell and Becker were even more passionate about film and getting audiences for what we would now consider classics. They had successes with such international films like Francois Truffaut's Two English Girls, Laurence Olivier's Richard III, and Yasujiro's Ozu's Floating Weeds. They expanded what Janus did by producing original works, mostly documentaries about movies that they would sell to film programs at colleges. In 1980, Salterell actually won Best Documentary Short at the Oscars for his film Paul Robeson, Tribute to an Artist. Robeson was an early Hollywood star and civil rights icon who was deeply admired by Terrell. Janice will later play a bigger part in the story, so we'll leave them behind for now. Our story is going to get back on track a bit. In 1984, Robert Stein, Aileen Stein, and Joe Medjuk created the Criterion Collection, where they sold movies on Laserdiscs. 
I've only seen a handful of LaserDiscs in person and have never used them, but for those who are even more unfamiliar with the technology, they were first introduced in 1978. They're about the size of a 12-inch record, but they look like the underside of a DVD and it plays on both sides. The format offered higher quality video and audio than VHS and Betamax. Although LaserDisc never managed to gain widespread use in North America, largely due to high cost for the players and discs, and the inability to record TV programs like tapes were able to do. Criterion start numbering the releases on the outside, calling them spine numbers. This is a trend they still continue today. I was able to find the spine numbers for the LaserDisc collection, but I'm not sure if they were released in chronological order, an issue that pops up once they switched over to DVD and Blu-ray. Release number one is Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, something that should surprise no one, as often considered the greatest film ever made. Releases that were among the first ten also include the original King Kong from 1933, Carol Reed's noir masterpiece The Third Man, early Hitchcock gems like The 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes, Fred Zinnemann's anti-McCarthyism western High Noon, and bringing us back to our old friend Igmar Bergman in The Seventh Seal. A year later, in 1985, we see the first coming together of the powers that be, with William Becker and Jonathan Terrell of Janus, and husband and wife team Robert and Aileen Stein of Criterion to create the Voyager Company. This company sold educational multimedia CD-ROMs, something that was brand new at the time. They were modestly successful, getting a foothold at shops like Barnes & Noble, a partnership that would be even more fruitful later on. But aside from their innovations, didn't really crack a larger dent in the market, despite being pioneers. During this time, Criterion became a subsidiary of Voyager and took a back seat, while the parent company was the bread and butter of the business. They continued to put out Laserdiscs under the Voyager banner as well, but mostly were educational films, not the types of titles being released as Criterions. This went on for a bit until the German publishing giant Holtzbrink Publishing Group purchased 20% of Voyager, along with a selection of their catalogue of CD-ROMs for $6.7 million dollars. The remaining four founders each kept 20% of their shares, but after the divorce of Robert and Aileen Stein, the company's structure changed up a bit. Aileen Stein, William Becker, and Jonathan Terrell eventually became the sole owners of the Criterion Collection and focused their energies on the company as it was now operating under Janus Films. Through the end of the 80s and the first half of the 90s, the team kept selling Laserdiscs as they were the best format to watch classic films on. They also pioneered several ways of presenting media that caused them to stand out. Starting with the very second movie they released, King Kong, they utilized the extra space on the Laserdiscs to include a commentary track by film historian Ronald Haver. This was a brand new concept and separated Criterion from every other distributor and made them appealing to fans wanting to know more about their favorite movies. You can hear a clip of the King Kong commentary here. This is an ingenious bit here too because the Kong is not really there lifting up that log. There's a chain hoist on the other end of the log, which is lifting it up and rolling it around. Uh, and as they fall into the uh, to the ravine there, uh, Kong, of course, is, is on a separate piece of film. This is all put together again in, in the optical printer later on. But here, of course, is the, the scene that was deleted after the first preview because it, uh, it, Cooper said it stopped the picture cold, which was the spider pit sequence. As the men fall into the ravine, they are set upon by huge, slimy monsters and eaten alive in very graphic close-up. And for the first time, the screaming on the screen, according to Cooper, at the preview, was matched by the screaming of the audience. And so many of them got up and left that uh, he decided that it would 
it would be better if it came out. He said, Obi, O'Brien was heartbroken because he felt it was some of his best work, and it was, but he said, it stopped the picture cold, so out it came. Ronald Haver recorded several commentary tracks for Criterion releases, including Casablanca, Singing in the Rain, and The Wizard of Oz. Now, when you hear the term letterbox, you might think of the website Letterboxd, which is a film social media site where you rate and review movies and get to interact with other users. But letterboxing is a way to present films on home TVs closer to the way filmmakers originally intended their movies to be seen. Movie theater screens are much wider than they are tall, and when TVs first became mainstays in households, they were more boxy. This led to films being cropped to fit television sets. What the most prominent way to get done was a process called pan and scan. This infuriated film buffs, but there was little people can do about it, as home videos were not much of a thing. So you are at the mercy of the stations presenting it this way. Letterboxing gave what most people refer to as black bars on their TVs, where the space directly above and below the image is just a bar, allowing the viewer to see the movie in all its widescreen glory. The first release to feature this aspect ratio was Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the eighth film they put out, and continued to do so for every movie thereafter. They come from a dying world. They drift through the universe, pushed on by the solar winds. They adapt, and they survive. The function of all life is survival. Sleep, sleep, sleep. From deep space, sleep. The seed is planted. Sleep, sleep. Terror. Grows. Matthew! Matthew! Like the others. Elizabeth, wake up. Get you when you sleep. Sit up. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's got no detail, no character. All in all, Criterion strive to provide as much content for the customer as possible. Their prices reflected this compared to other home video releases. But when you can watch movies in the correct aspect ratio, listen to commentary tracks, see production stills, watch original trailers, deleted scenes, and alternate cuts, you are more than getting your money's worth. They made sure the packaging was just as crisp, with emphasis on clean covers and high-resolution stills. From 1986 through 2005, marketing and distribution of the Criterion products was handled by a company called Home Vision Entertainment. This was notable as they helped them expand their reach and obtain the rights to distribute the Merchant Ivory Collection, 17 films made by the British duo consisting of producer Ismail Merchant and director James Ivory. Films in the collection included Maurice, The Bostonians, and Shakespeare Walla. Have you been right? you were. In 2006, a company called Image Entertainment purchased Home Vision Entertainment, who handled distribution for them until 2013, which then, after showing the growth and value of the Criterion brand, they partnered with Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, who have maintained their position for the last seven years. A total of 325 films were released by Criterion on Laserdisc between their launch of 1984 through 1999, with the very last release being Michael Bay's Armageddon. 
They'd announced 26 films that never ended up coming out, like David Lynch's Blue Velvet, a Francois Truffaut box set containing three of his films, and Elia Kazan's On the Waterfront. These films were given spy numbers, and one movie, The Prince of Tides, was produced and pulled before it hit stores. It does exist in private collections and can be purchased relatively cheap on sites like eBay. Criterion also put out three TV shows on Laserdisc, with episodes from The Addams Family, I Love Lucy, and the entire HBO miniseries Tanner 88, which was directed by Robert Altman. All the Laserdiscs are now considered out of print as Criterion no longer makes them and lost the rights to most of the movies they put out, even if they eventually got back a sizable chunk of them. I've learned all I know about love from the women in my life. My daughters. My sister. My wife. My mother. The children blame me for everything. I spoke to Savannah's doctor. She wants one of us to go up there right away. Hello. I'm Dr. Lowenstein. What do you want from me? I I need you to be her memory, Miss Anson. Fill in the missing details. (laughs) I spent my life trying to forget those missing details. Criterion was an early adapter of DVDs, the format which became available in 1996. Laserdiscs could only hold about 60 minutes of content per side, so for movies that came jam-packed with extras like Criterion's releases, this necessitated several discs that needed to be flipped every hour of watching a movie. DVDs, on the other hand, could hold a lot more information on the much more compact disc and was a digital format compared to Laserdiscs' analog. Criterion planned their first batch of films and announced that they would restart their spine numbering system from one again, as these small discs were the way of the future for the company. Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion was to be spine number one, but its release ended up getting pushed back. According to a Reddit comment I found from a now inactive account that said, apparently it was held back because better film elements were found. I haven't been able to find any additional sources to this claim, but it would make sense as the first Criterion DVD releases were Fellini's Armacord and Truffaut's The 400 Belows, with spine numbers 4 and 5 respectively. These two films came out March 31, 1998. Grand Illusion, the number one film in the series, didn't get a release date until November 23, 1999. The original number two film in the collection was Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, which was actually the 37th overall release chronologically. After the first two years where films were released out of sequence, they mostly got things under control in regards to numbered releases. But don't be shocked if looking at films that come out today still don't quite match up with the order they should have been in. Some selections of early films released in 1998, the first year they switched over to DVD, include Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, John Woo's Hard Boiled, Rob Reiner's This is Spinal Tap, and Fritz Lang M showcasing the very genres, release periods, languages, and status. Criterion has always maintained that they are not here to be gatekeepers of cinema by deeming what is classic or not. Instead, they work to preserve films that are important to the history of cinema the world over and had limited distribution deals. If this means putting out schlocky Italian horror films like Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula, then so be it. Your first drummer was... Uh, the John Stumpy Peeps. Oh, yeah. Great, great, uh tall blonde geek with glasses yeah. uh, good drama great look good drama good, yeah good yeah, drama. Fine drama. what happened to him he died he he died in a bizarre gardening accident some years back it's, it's really one of those things it was 
you know, the authorities said, you know, best leave it you know, unsolved, yeah. really. You know. And he was replaced by... Uh, Stumpy Joe. Eric Stumpy Eric Joe. Child. Child. And Eric. what happened to Stumpy Joe? Well, uh, it's not a very pleasant story, but no. uh, He's, uh, he, he died, uh, he choked on... Uh, the, the, the official explanation was he choked on vomit. It was actually, uh, it was actually someone else's vomit. It's not... <laughs> you know, there's no real... Well, they can't yeah, prove whose vomit it was. They, never, they don't have no, facilities no in Scotland Yard no to, to print. Picking up these beautiful Criterion releases could take a toll on one's wallet. The company believes their products are priced fairly, considering the amount of love and care that goes into each release. I mentioned the pioneering of commentary tracks, special features packed in, new and original artwork, and printed essays. Another big aspect of what Criterion does is restoration. There's a fantastic video I'll link to in the show notes from 2014 where Gizmodo went to their head office and filmed them working on the release for Alfred Hitchcock's 1940 film Foreign Correspondent. In the six-minute documentary, we see a technical director who oversees the entire process, which includes tracking down the negative, or a print, that is in decent condition, and is scanned at a higher resolution, frame by frame, into digital files. The digitized reels then move to the next steps. The film's color is graded, dirt and scratches are retouched, and audio is remastered. They use a combination of automated software to correct any flaws while also going over everything manually to ensure if things are missed or overcorrected. The process of making a film suitable for release can take anywhere from a few weeks to a few months for a single film, depending on how much work needs to be done. I'm Lee Klein. I'm the technical director at the Criterion Collection. We're going to talk about foreign correspondent. original negative that went through the camera that Hitchcock shot was at the Library of Congress, which is great because most times a negative from that era doesn't exist. So there's lots of issues about printing from uh, generational use that causes problems. Things like weave where the film will move around, flicker, there's light that gets in between the printing of the negative to the positive. So when you can get the original negative and it's in good condition, you're in great shape. We scanned it. We were pretty surprised to see that the negative from 1940 was in such great shape. In 2K, the scanning takes about two days. In 4K, it takes four times as long. So you would need at least a week to scan a 90-minute movie. All that said, there are more budget-friendly options for fans of cinema. In 2007, Criterion started a sister company called Eclipse, which put out box sets of films with limited restoration and no bonus features as a way of getting even more obscure cinema into the hands of film lovers. Some of their releases include Early Bergman, Late Ozu, Postwar Kurosawa, and Agnes Varda in California, among many others. They price these films at $15 per disc, so a six-disc set has a suggested retail price of $79.99 American. While Criterion eventually moved to releasing films in both DVD-Blu-ray combo packs and just Blu-rays, Eclipse releases continue only being released on DVD in order to keep it affordable. Speaking of Blu-rays, in 2008 the company shifted over to the new medium, at first releasing films in a combo DVD-Blu-ray packages, since not everyone had a Blu-ray player at the time. With the first batch coming out December 16, 2008, they entered the market with Carol Reed's The Third Man, Nicholas Roeg's The Man Who Fell to Earth, Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket, and Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. Ending with all that jazz in 2014, the company stopped issuing dual-format packages and instead releasing DVDs and Blu-rays separately. 
Another important aspect of the Criterion Collection is their box sets. They look at films by director, studio, or era and put them together to get even more bang for your buck. Starting in 2000, they put out the Orphic Trilogy, three films by French director Jean Cocteau. These early box sets were relatively small, containing three to five films apiece. Notable early releases include John Cassavetti's Five Films, The Complete Monterey Pop Festival, and Carl Theodore Dreyer. They started to put together a much more impressive packages as they got more bold, including Zadawachi, The Blind Swordsman, a long-running Japanese action series that contained 25 films made between 1962 and 1973. Collected for the first time in one package, 100 Years of Olympic Films, 1912 to 2012, contains 32 discs covering 41 Olympics, combining restorations of the events and documentaries about the games themselves. Another one is Ingmar Bergman's Cinema, which contains 39 of the Swedish director's films, a huge 248-page book with essays on every movie included, and more than 30 hours of bonus content. To celebrate a half-century of Janus Films and the partnership they had with them, Criterion released Essential Art House, 50 Years of Janus Films, a DVD collection that encompasses just about the most important film releases ever. Titles included The 39 Steps, The 400 Blows, Brief Encounter, Kind Hearts and Coronets, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, Rashomon, Richard III, Umberto D, Wild Strawberries, and much, much more. This brown fabric bound binder also included a 240-page book of notes, credits, and stills on all 50 titles. The occasion was interesting in that it provided me with my first sight of the Descoins or Mess. Interesting and somewhat depressing for it emphasized how far I had yet to travel. There was the Duke. There was my employer, Lord Escoin Descoin. There was Admiral Lord Horatio Descoin. There was General Lord Rufus Descoin. There was Lady Agatha Descoin. And in the pulpit, talking interminable nonsense, the Reverend Lord Henry Descoin. The life cut short was one rich in achievement and promise of service to humanity. The Descoins certainly appear to have accorded with the tradition of the landed gentry and sent the fool of the family into the church. Martin Scorsese also has his Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project, which began in 2007 as he worked to restore and release films that were marginalized and infrequently screened, from regions generally ill-equipped to preserve their own cinema history. This includes movies from Senegal, Turkey, Thailand, Taiwan, Cuba, and Iran. There have been three volumes of the World Cinema Project released so far. As the spine numbers grew higher and higher, fans clamored to know what would end up with the elusive number 1,000 a number that on the surface doesn't mean anything, but shows how far the company has come along. For almost a year leading up to the release, fans openly wondered and guessed what could actually be worthy of such a designation. Would the company downplay the significance and just release whatever they had upcoming, or would they make it an event? Well, after plenty of rumors, fans were duly rewarded with Godzilla, the Showa-era films, 1954-1975. to the set contained the first 15 Godzilla films released in just about the most gorgeous pop art packaging possible, truly befitting the company that towers over all their competition. The last recorded tremor was four hours ago. Hopefully, it was the last. 
This now brings us to the streaming age of Criterion. Starting in 2008, Criterion partnered with a website called The Auteurs, now known as Mubi, for customers to rent select Criterion releases for $5 a film. This proved to be a bit too expensive for people who want to regularly watch Criterion films, and as such, wasn't a hit. For a time, Netflix had some titles available before they had their complete library available on Hulu Plus for a period of time. Eventually, Turner Classic Movies launched a streaming service that was a perfect marriage for Criterion's films called Filmstruck. The service began on November 1st, 2016 with two tiers of pricing. The standard package without Criterion films was $6.99 a month, and the Criterion edition was $10.99 per month. At the time of launch, there were 200 Criterion films on the service, slowly working its way up to 1,200 films by 2018. Also, in 2018, Filmstruck absorbed the entire catalog of Warner Archive Instant, getting even more classic cinema onto the service. Sadly, though, when Warner Brothers, which owned Turner Classic Movies, and thus the service, went through an organizational shift, Filmstruck was one of the several services that was deemed non-essential. On November 29, 2018, the service officially closed up, leaving the digital Criterion collection homeless for the time being. In an effort to save the service... In its last month, a group of high-profile filmmakers including Paul Thomas Anderson, Alfonso Cuaron, Guillermo del Toro, Leonardo DiCaprio, Barry Jenkins, Christopher Nolan, and Barbara Streisand signed a petition urging Warner's chairman to save the service. Four days after the letter was released, Warner Media and Criterion announced that the Criterion Channel would launch as a standalone service in spring the following year in both the United States and Canada. Starting on April 8, 2019, the Criterion Channel opened its doors of more than 1,000 Janus and Criterion films. They created a wide schedule of programming, including Tuesdays having a short plus feature pairing, Wednesdays dedicated to women filmmakers, Fridays a double feature, Saturdays a family-friendly matinee, and on Sundays a new curated collection would be added. The service also offered series like Adventure and Movie Going, Observations on Film Art, Art House America, and Split Screen. Another way people are able to digitally access Criterion's output is through Canopy, a service utilized by the American public libraries. If your library system and branch had signed up for Canopy, you can access the movies for free using your library card. This is a great service for students and young people to experience movies they likely wouldn't have seen before if they feel so inclined. That just about tells the story of who created Criterion and the long and winding road they took to get where they are today. People that still prefer the act of owning physical media rejoice at the fact that twice a year, Barnes & Noble and on Criterion's website, they have a 50% off sale to help clear out old stock, with many people spending a lot of money picking up titles they had their eyes on for a while. I was actually curious about what Criterion fans spend their money on, so I made a simple six-question survey and posted it on the Criterion subreddit. Within only a few days, I received 177 responses before I locked the post. I want to share some interesting statistics that I gleaned. I asked, how many Criterion editions of movies do you own? 39% of people said more than 40 films, with almost 20% each split between less than 10, 10 to 20, and 20 to 40 films. I shouldn't be surprised that so many people own so many films. I actually had someone leave me a comment wondering why the highest number you could select was 40 plus, with my rationale being, if you own more than 40, you have a lot of movies, and it doesn't change if I say it to 50 or 75. I was curious to know if people solely collect Criterion films or if they buy lots of physical media. 
41% of people said less than a quarter of all the movies they own are Criterion editions, meaning that all those people that have over 40 Criterion films have even more non-Criterion films. About half of the remaining responders said the number falls between a quarter and two-thirds. Five people did say that 100% of the movies they own are Criterion, and that is dedication. I want to know if people were subscribing to the Criterion Channel streaming service. 66% said yes, they were, and 33% said no, they were not. I really want to understand what makes people buy Criterion products at all, and I knew I would get plenty of great answers. Almost 40% of people said it was because of the hard-to-find titles, 20% said it was the special features, 6% said the artwork, and 4% said the box sets. I also allowed other to be picked, and 30% of people said that, with almost all the answers being all of the above, followed by the appreciation of the quality of transfer they made for home releases. I was curious to know the most people spent on a single haul and what they got with most responses either being pricey box sets like the Godzilla one, Bergman set, Cassavetti set, the Decalogue, or just a whole bunch of single films picked up during the Barnes & Noble sale. Most people's highest receipts were around $100, but several people mentioned having spent over $500 on a single haul, which is pretty crazy to me. Lastly, I asked what was everyone's prized possession, as I figured I would learn a lot about people that way. Some fun responses I got include an original Laserdisc of Boogie Nights, before trilogy signed by Ethan Hawke. A lot of people said the Bergman set, and a few said they're signed Do the Right Thing. Honestly, reading the responses to this question made me smile the most. People took the time to answer the survey, which for the most part were pretty simple questions, but much like Criterion, they put the time and effort into saying what films meant the most to them, and more often than not, meant putting several answers, because at the end of the day, what's better than one favorite film than having many favorite films? I want to thank everyone for taking the time and responding to the survey. It made me believe that doing all the homework and prep for this episode would be worthwhile. All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just going to haunt me the rest of my life. I have no idea what your situation is, but I feel like we have some kind of uh, connection, right? Yeah, me too. Great. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. We just got into Vienna today, and we're looking for something fun to do. It's pregnancy English? Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, Let me speak German for a change. Now I'm going to call my best friend in Paris, who I'm supposed to have lunch with in eight hours. Okay? Okay. Ring, ring. Pick up the phone. Uh, oh, hello? I don't think I'm going to be able to make it for lunch today. I'm sorry. I met a guy on the train, and I got off with him in Vienna. We're still there. Are you crazy? Probably. That wraps up a history of the Criterion Collection. ContraZoom is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. I'd like to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. We're also on YouTube, too. What would you like to hear about me do a history about next time? Email us at ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. It will be a great help if you would rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, as it will help us grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.